This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swissinfo.ch production. From the world's humanitarian capital, we explore the challenges facing our planet. Whether it's migration or climate change, human rights or global health, I'll be taking you behind the scenes for some straight talk with the people facing up to those challenges. Now, as many of our listeners know, this year marks the 75th anniversary of the United Nations. And our recording date today, June 26, 2020, is a particularly important one in this anniversary year. We, the people of the United Nations, determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind. On June 26, 1945, the United Nations Charter was signed and countries dedicated themselves to working together to tackle global challenges. Multilateralism, if you like, was born. Today, we're going to look specifically at the UN's work in health through the World Health Organization. To discuss health and multilateralism, I'm joined by Ilona Kickbush. She herself worked for many years at the WHO. She's now director of the Global Health Programme at Geneva's Graduate Institute. We're also joined by Dr. Maria Guevara, Senior Advisor on Global Health at Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders. And finally, he's back, our resident analyst and devil's advocate, Daniel Warner. So welcome to you all. And why not, let's start right up to date. We're in the middle of a pandemic and that, I suppose, demonstrates the need for a global health body. Ilona? Well, absolutely. Even though we must add that initially when countries were negotiating for a United Nations, they hadn't thought about an international health body and it needed a special initiative by a group of countries to actually get it going. And uh, so that is interesting to see that the initial concept did not include health, but then over the years, of course, health became an incredibly important part. It's also important to see, and that's so relevant for the present situation where health has become so politicized uh, there was a conscious decision to have a health organization in Geneva and not in New York uh, because the experiences with the health office in the League of Nations had been that it was thoroughly politicized very early on. And therefore one had this, as one knows today, uh, uh, idealistic hope that uh, if we put the health organization further away from the politics of the United Nations as such, it would be free from politics. What we experience now, of course, is that WHO is in the midst of this uh, geopolitical crisis and has become the punching bag uh, for that. And uh, at the same time, of course, it's a signal that a number of countries think they no longer need a multilateralist organization. Uh, to be able to resolve their health issues. We're going to come back to the politicisation of health in a moment. But first, Maria Guevara, I'd like to bring 
you in? Because you've worked with MSF all over the world. You've worked in Liberia and Haiti, Myanmar, South Sudan, and many more. I, I was reading from the bio you sent me. What's your take on this, on the challenge we, we now face with this pandemic and, and the role of the WHO? Doctors Without Borders uh, or MSF is what we call ourselves is, um, you know, we've always been somehow working, but yet still oppositional to um, WHO. And I just wanted to reflect back on um, the West Africa Ebola outbreak, where um, we know there was a huge failure internationally, but also a real call out to WHO. And there was a moment there where the people were saying, hey, MSF, can you be the new WHO? And I can say, no, we're not. We're a civil society organization. And WHO's role is different from organizations like ours who are there to do the emergency, but they're there to set standards, to try to get us to a, an acceptable space of what, what we should have in place for health. But I, I would warn that they're not necessarily there to police it. Um, and the implementation of health systems should be at the national levels. Nevertheless, we do think there's still um, some elements that WHO had to do to put in place to make sure that that leadership as the, uh, of health was still in their hands, that they're able to carry that out. You know, as I took part in the advisory group on the reform of WHO during for the work in outbreaks and emergencies, and some of the advice um, that we made that we needed to take on a no regrets approach, that the structure needed right people, right places at the right time, and that it needed definitely a centralizing structure that you need for emergency response. And WHO could play that, but of course that needed funds and that needed resources. And we know that's at the heart of the problem of WHO and it still is today. And I think, you know, you can't fault them when they're having to kowtow to those to those who are feeding them. And that puts them into tension when you have to put in and make sure that standards are in place. I mean, it's hard when, when they're biting your hand and said, nope, <laughs> we don't want to. So, you know, what do you do with that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult dilemma. I mean, certainly we heard just from the WHO today that it's got a funding gap of something like $27 billion to support low and middle income countries fight the pandemic. Now, Danny, let's bring you in here because you often have the kind of some of the political analysis. We heard from Ilona, the WHO has become a bit of a punch bag. But at the same time, even before this pandemic, there are issues, aren't there, with the fact that health itself is a very politicized topic. Governments like to be totally in control, but then look perhaps for a scapegoat. Well, I thought Lona made a, a, a fascinating comment about the history of health. After all, the League of Nations, which failed, uh, came after the First World War. Health was not a major issue. The United Nations came after the Second World War. Health was not an issue, major issue. The WHO began, what, 1948, after 45. What interests me is here we have a pandemic, the likes of which we haven't seen perhaps since 1918 and the Spanish flu, and yet a pandemic is a global event and one would think that the only solution of dealing with it would be global. So why is it that in a global situation, we're in this polarized situation where sovereignty seems to be more important than anything else? And the fact is that countries have to cooperate because the viruses don't have visas or passports. So I think there's something strange going on where countries such as the United States 
are saying we're going to be sovereign, dealing with the problems that can't be solved without cooperation. I wonder, though, if there's such a, a political cost to this pandemic of handling it badly. In a way, you see countries, government leaders looking for somebody else to blame. And then you see the other. In fact, we just I just want to hear from uh, Dr. Tedros, because this has been his mantra from the start of the pandemic, an appeal he made to all countries on the planet. I know the tragedy that comes from disease, from pandemics, from war. We need national unity. Everybody fighting this virus, taking care of their citizens, taking care of real people. We need global solidarity. He's calling for solidarity constantly. And yet right from the start, I mean, we're sitting in Switzerland, which I know because the health minister admitted it, that he was bidding around the world at the start for masks and for PPE. And then Switzerland's closest neighbours, France and Germany, impounded some of that, even though it had been paid for. So I wonder whether, you know, we face a challenge like this and instead of coming together, we are going further and further apart and thinking we just need to look after our patch. Who wants to come in there? Ilona, Maria? Ilona. Well, I think you have to look at various parts of this. I mean, let's be honest. First of all, it's only one country right now who's saying we're going to leave the WHO. There's been some mumblings from Brazil because of the closeness in political orientation of the two gentlemen. But so far, it's only the United States. And even there, we don't know exactly where it's going. That's one thing. The second thing is what Maria alluded to. How much support have the member states, WHO as a member state owned organization, given the organization over the years, and how much have they paid for it? And they have refused, initially also pushed by the United States, to increase the funding for WHO and have therefore made it more dependent. It indicates that countries want to have a very clear control. And then there's been significantly a group of countries who've always tried to weaken WHO, again, in its normative function. And it was uh, then a breakthrough after the... Um, Ebola crisis in West Africa and the various commissions, I also belong to one, who said WHO needs more money and a stronger operational role in terms of outbreaks and pandemics. And we actually said it needed a stronger legal base to be more independent in the context of the international health regulations. That takes us back to the countries. And again, you know, a certain group of countries who's particularly keen on sovereignty. And, you know, they are some of the old world powers who said, you know, in the context of the IHR, oh no, you know, we're not going to give away one jot of our uh, sovereignty. And so now we're in that situation. But I would warn us, we are not talking about a majority of countries saying, we don't want solidarity, we want to leave WHO, we want this, that and the other. We have a significant number of countries saying we need to correct some of the faults we did not correct after Ebola. And they are legal, they are financial, they you know, include some of these sovereignty issues. 
And that's the historical challenge. Maria, I saw you nodding there. And Danny, you've got your hand up too. So I'll come to you, Maria, first for, for comment on what Ilona just said. Yeah, just to expand a little bit, I mean, you have to really look at what where WHO sits along with other, other UN organizations and multilateral platforms. And basically, it's like they have a disempowerment clause, right? They're disenfranchised enterprises. They're not really empowered to make those kind of decisions for everybody. Inherent in the multilateral system is, is um, it's not an equal voice on the table, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, you wonder how you actually bring in the multiplicity of voices that can and should be there, like pluralism aspect as a future way to look at this. But just um, as you were mentioning, U.S., and I'm not necessarily speaking as an MSFer, but as an American, and I did come back from the U.S. to open a project as an MSF in the U.S. And so that, to me, was the most surreal situation to see my own country in this context like a fragile state. What does that mean? And I think we do need to put that into context and we need to know and understand why the distraction is being put there and why the blame is again to the external, which is WHO in this case. And maybe the power should be that, okay, on this aspect, we give power to this multilateral platform. On this aspect, this is the responsibility of that nation. I am not a politician. I'm just a citizen. I happen to be a medical doctor and a humanitarian worker. And it's just really tiring to see that even if we answer to humanitarian crisis right, left, and center, what I'm seeing today is a crisis of humanity. So back to that principle of who are we as a species and how do we really work collectively and listen to each other? I just think it's a failure of the whole system. Danny, let's bring you in because we're coming back to the, the topic that you and I have been discussing all year, really, which is the UN at 75. Where is it effective? Where is it not effective? Could it be effective if it had more power? But yet the big powers complain about it being not effective, but they don't want it to have more power. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting when we use the word multilateral. Are we talking about only states? If we're talking about only states, Lona mentioned middle powers. In fact, the United States has been the leader of the foundation of multilateralism, the UN, and, and the whole UN system has been based on American leadership. Now, if, can we imagine that other states, middle powers, Australia, Switzerland, Germany, France, can take over the role of leading the international system putting the United States, China, or the major powers along, alongside. But my other question is, I find it fascinating that the International Labor Organization is the only organization in Geneva that has other actors in it at the table besides states. Could we diffuse the power at the WHO, A, to have more actors, and B, to have a lack of leadership by the United States, China, or Russia to have the middle powers or other actors, private actors, be really the leadership and a new form of multilateralism coming into the picture. Yes, I could see Ilona looking there. You, I'm sure, want to come in there, Ilona. It's an interesting concept, isn't it, from Danny? Yes, because, uh, I mean, what we are seeing is definitely the hegemony of the United States and particularly the period after the global financial crises and the 
uh, end of the Cold War when it seemed, you know, we had entered an American century, et cetera, et cetera, that's gone. And it's gone for a whole number of reasons. We've seen that other centers of power, be that Russia, if you look up in the Eurasian part of Asia, Europe continent, you look at China and the way it's entered Africa and other places and have created fora which exclude the United States. Quite simply, it's not only that the United States didn't want to join them, it's also, you know, it wasn't in the plan. And I think we also have to be, to a certain extent, a bit careful in saying, yes, we want a more plural system, because actually the two big autocratic powers, if uh, and Russia loves still being seen as a power, are, you know, exactly those countries that say we need a multilateralism that is built on different concepts of the world. And then it does mean that concepts like human rights that uh, were adopted under American leadership after the Second World War suddenly get a totally different meaning. And we know what's happening in the Human Rights Council. And all of that is playing out in health now where there was a consensus on norms. You know, you didn't always fully follow them, but you would never, never have said in public that, you know, I don't support sexual and reproductive health and rights. Now, you know, there's a whole family of nations out there that are ready to beat it down. So something very significant is happening. And I do think it's important if you look, and again, I come back to the... um, The European Union six months ago said, we're going to become a geopolitical power. Everybody started laughing. And, you know, things helped on by Corona have moved at a tremendous speed. European Union with Germany entering the presidency is standing up to Trump, is even starting to stand up to China, took the leadership in the WHO, to group 150 countries behind it in a WHO resolution never happened before. And it's interesting to see how, you know, we just heard countries like Australia, like Indonesia, like Thailand, and African countries. Let's not forget, you know, who brought Tedros into that position. It was the African Union, It was the Pacific Island states. It was a very, very interesting coalition uh, that has never been there before. And of course, again, it's a candidate that was not supported uh, by the United States of America. So I I think something significant is changing and it's being played out in the health arena as much as everywhere else. You talk about something significant happening and and I think we have to admit there's something significant happening in the United States and its foreign policy as well in the last few years and although perhaps we don't want to give him too much attention we couldn't have a discussion about the WHO and the pandemic and multilateralism without hearing from the man himself the president of the United States. We will be today terminating our relationship with the World Health Organization and redirecting those funds to other worldwide and deserving urgent global public health needs. China has total control over the World Health Organization. Now, Maria, you're American. 
do you think the WHO would now be better off without the United States? I mean, they just seem to be just causing an awful lot of trouble. Uh, <laughs> um, well, you know, I think as a, as a medical physician trained in the U.S., one of our best assets is the fact that we have great technical, clinical capacities, and that should be fed more, uh, and that should be a two-way road. On that note, I am not a fan of our healthcare system. Putting that aside, um, I think what we need to realize is that um, those leadership has to come from both sides. Everybody has to feed that table. WHO will survive with the U.S., and maybe U.S. will try to survive without the world. You know, and this is where the, the principles and the ethics and the value system um, that is inherent in understanding what humanity is coming from an organization that speaks on humanity and principles. This is what I'm feeling constantly is the problem. And you're feeling it a lot in the U.S. And from years of uh, misinformation, years of dumbing down the public, years of just not having the right systems in place, education or health or whatever. But um, I just, again, and going back a little bit on health security, without a collective look at health security and without addressing the individual health security, no one is safe. And so, yes, U.S. cannot survive without WHO because we cannot collectively help each other if we don't address that collective health security. Danny, what's your view on that? I mean, you're, you're American as well, and I think you've been reflecting for quite some time on whether there's going to be a, a real hole in the UN system if the, if the US continues in its disengagement. Uh, my question is about that. An organization like MSF or an individual, private individual like Bill Gates, couldn't they be, in a sense, filling the certain vacuum left by the United States, first certainly financially, but in other ways, aren't we moving more and more out of a state-centric situation where private partners, foundations, and organizations, non-governmental, non-state organizations, are becoming more and more active? And I'm surprised that in our discussion of the WHO, it's very state-centric. So I'd like to hear the role of individuals like Gates. He certainly gives a lot of money to certain projects. Well, I'm going to ask Ilona and Maria to reflect on that point. We're coming almost to the end of the programme. And what I wanted to do is listen to, because you mentioned earlier, uh, Ilona, Germany's stepping up to the plate. We had the German health minister in Geneva this week. He went to the World Health Organization. He basically handed over half a billion Dollars, and this is what Jens Spar had to say. This is a clear sign for our dedication to the work of WHO. Our common message should be today. We are standing together fighting global health problems. We are convinced in a pandemic you have to react on national level, but you have to coordinate the reaction internationally and with all partners around you and on the world. Isolated national answers to international problems are doomed to fail. So we're talking there about support for multilateralism, but also countries, and as Danny suggested, possibly other organisations, filling the gap. So as we close, could I get your final thoughts on 
are there entities that could fill the gap at the WHO and how do you see the future of the WHO over the next few years and coming out of this pandemic? Ilona, I'll start with you. Well, two things. First of all, of course, uh, the global health landscape is one of the most populated landscapes on a global issue with so many private actors, important non-governmental organizations, be it Médecins Sans Frontières, be it the Red Cross movements, there's private sector actors who are, have got involved more and more, partly through the WEF, the big foundations, of course, uh, especially Gates, who in the context of WHO is particularly active around polio, and polio is one of these uh, disease-based examples where, you know, a lot of money and a lot of actors come together. So, you know, that landscape is heavily populated. Initially, one thought, you know, that will make WHO unnecessary because it will just be the, the small brother of, you know, all these big, rich organizations. And that's my second point. There are things you can't do without states, full stop. And in COVID-19, at national level, at regional level, and for me, the EU is the best example there. And at global level, we're seeing unless states act and fulfill their commitment as states, unless they provide a basic security to their countries. And here I use the German version of security, because when we say security, Sicherheit, what we associate is social security is a security as citizens, not as Americans associate a security that's a military type of security. We're constantly being uh, criticized that we don't put enough money into the military because we prefer to spend it on development. So I think we've, many people say with COVID, we're seeing a return of the state. And it's quite clear that certain functions of the state need to also be fulfilled at a global level and states need to act in a solidaric manner in, and one hardly dare say it nowadays, in a rules-based order. There are things we need to agree on. There are things states need to agree on and WHO should be the organization that helps states move that forward as states, not exclusively, but by calling them to their responsibilities. You mentioned the German minister being there yesterday. How is it that you know, Germany has now become one of the largest donors of the World Health Organization in support of multilateralism? Not just because it's health, but because health has become symbolic for multilateralism at this point in time. And basically, if we let the global health organization go, then we've really said goodbye to multilateralism. Thank you very much. Maria, I'm going to give the final words to you because Danny suggested there could MSF fill any gaps at the WHO. Why don't you look forward and perhaps remind us also of what a commitment to global public health can mean and what a difference it can make? Right. Thank you for that really big question. Um, I just really wanted to take two points. One, go back to the question of pluralism and the importance of diversity of voices. And there's no question that without state, we will fail. But we just need to know how the state is opening that to, to bring and listen 
to different voices. We know from any outbreak um, success, we need to bring the community in. And today we celebrate the end of at least the North Kivu um, Ebola outbreak. So we keep for that. But one of the other things is going on this kind of um, ideological and principled tools. And I think from MSF's perspective, that is probably our saving grace that we always had this very principled action, even though for those who know us, we have our inner mechanisms that are not always working. But when there's an emergency, we go and run and we work together and we shed that blood aside and we go and answer to the question and to the crisis at hand. So what's happening here is that COVID is reminding us, though, that um, old ways do not work and we need to go back to basics. You know, the question is, what do we keep? What's the good? And how do we discard the bad and the ugly? But do we know what those are? And are people willing to get rid of those um, those different elements? I think what's very interesting is um, just to also answer the question of will who will win WHOUS? I would rather invert that and ask the question, who will lose? I think it's the people, the patients. I think at the end of all of this, it's us. And I think we need to keep that in mind on how do we rise above this plague? Um, but I guess I will just That brings us to the end of a very interesting discussion on health and multilateralism and the organisation at the heart of the storm, the pandemic storm at the moment, the World Health Organisation. We could talk about this for hours longer, but we have no more time, I'm afraid. So thank you to all of our guests today, Ilona Kickbush, Maria Guevara and Daniel Warner. I'm Imogen Folks. This has been Inside Geneva, a SwissInfo.ch production. And a reminder just before we go that you can hear more episodes of the Inside Geneva podcast series, including a special documentary on the United Nations at 75 and an exclusive interview with former Human Rights Commissioner Zaid Rad Al-Hussein. To subscribe to Inside Geneva, just go to swissinfo.ch forward slash eng forward slash Inside Geneva. Thanks again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.